Thanks for joining us for the latest podcast of the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. This show will be covering a trio of cases discussing what sort of information an officer must have regarding a search clause before conducting a search pursuant to that search clause. The podcast will provide 55 minutes of general self-study MCLE credit. My guest, once again, for this edition of IPG, is search and seizure expert, Santa Clara County Deputy District Attorney, Mike Galley. Mike, thanks very much for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back. Mike, the first case of our trio of cases is People versus Douglas. And it's a good case to start with because it lays out a lot of the ground rules that generally govern searches conducted pursuant to search clauses. So Mike, why don't you start off by telling us what happened in Douglas? Okay. On May 19th of 2013, a Richmond police detective was on duty in a Special Investigations Division parole unit. He was the passenger in the car. About 9.30 p.m., he saw Lethal Douglas sitting behind the wheel of a parked car. The detective was investigating recent gun violence in the area and recognized Mr. Douglas because he had arrested him about two years earlier for a firearms-related offense. Although he couldn't recall when, the officer testified that he contacted Mr. Douglas on a few occasions recently. The detective testified that he knew Mr. Douglas was on uh, PRCS, which is... Uh, Post-release community supervision. Correct. Uh, and what is that generally? Generally, it's when someone should normally go to state prison, they're housed locally in the various county jails. When they are released, they are placed on that it's not called probation, but it's called post-release community service. Okay, so it's a form of uh, supervision. Exactly. It's similar to uh, arguably parole, similar to probation, probation well. in some aspects. Okay, so they're monitored once they're released, obviously. All right. So, what does the detective decide to do? So, because part of his job was to regularly monitor to see who's on probation, parole, he decided to contact Mr. Douglas and speak with him to ensure that he was basically complying with the terms of his release. The officer didn't check what's known as the ARIES system in the East Bay, which is the Automated Regional Information Exchange System. It's a computer-based system, basically, which regularly lists information supplied by the probation department regarding who's on probation. And he didn't, he didn't access it? He did not this time. Why not? He just didn't have sufficient time to access it here before he made the contact. Okay. The detective testified that he that uh, he did recall having seen Mr. Douglas's name on a list of active probationers sometimes within sometime within the preceding two months. As he approached the car, Mr. Douglas moved his car forward a few feet. The detective believed that Mr. Douglas was trying to flee and ordered him to stop the car. Mr. Douglas complied, put the car in reverse, and the detective again told him to stop, which he did. The detective then ordered Mr. Douglas out of the car and for his own safety pinned him against the car's door and frame. A short scuffle ensued and the detective successfully handcuffed Mr. Douglas. As he was handcuffing him though, a loaded 38 caliber semi-automatic handgun fell from Mr. Douglas's hand or arm area uh, to the floorboard of the car. After being handcuffed in response to the detective's questions, Mr. Douglas admitted that he was on uh, probation. Okay. Now, as we've indicated, 
the detective didn't actually check the list of probationers like right before he did the did the detention and search, correct? Correct. And when was the last time he did check? Well, he recalled seeing his name on a list of active probationers within the preceding two months, so probably within the last two months he would have checked. Now, I know that you mentioned that the defendant in this case, Douglas, had told the officer that he was on probation, but was he actually on probation? No, he was really on PRCS, but he said probation. Okay. So he was actually on PRCS at the time that he was stopped? He was. And does, does PRCS, does that always come with a search clause? Yes, it does. Okay, so he's on PRCS. It comes with a search clause. So what's the thrust of his challenge to this search on appeal? Well, it's interesting. He says that the firearm should be suppressed as fruit of the poisonous tree because the officer had no reasonable suspicion for the detention. While a detention could be justified based on his PRCS condition, he claimed that the detective had to be aware of the search condition before relying on it, and the detective did not have actual current knowledge he was on PRCS with a search condition before he detained him. Okay, so this challenge raises several related but distinct issues regarding whether the detective had sufficient knowledge of the, the perks clause, and when I say perks, it's always referring to the post-release community supervision, before conducting the detention and the search. Now, the Court of Appeal addressed each of these issues in order, and we're going to basically follow what the Court of Appeal did. But before we do, let's lay out some of the general ground rules when it comes to probation and parole search clauses in general. Good idea. First, probation and parole search clauses allow for warrantless searches. Are these searches permissible generally under the Fourth Amendment? Suspicionless searches are lawful in California for both probationers and parolees, so long as they're not conducted arbitrarily, capriciously, or for harassment. There's also a U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, I believe it's Sampson versus California, which deals only with parole searches, and so suspicionless parole searches are fine also. Okay, they don't deal with the situation of whether or not suspicionless probation searches are approved. Correct, they have not addressed that issue. But at least in California, it's pretty clear. Yes. All right. Now, are the rules governing probation and parole search clauses the same? No, they're not. How are they different? Well, the probation search is based on the consent of the probationer to the search condition, uh, while the parolee's consent is not required. And why do we have this difference? Why are they treated differently? Well, the difference in the rules stems in part from the fact of the rationale for finding a warrantless parole search to be reasonable under the Fourth Amendment is um, a bit different. When one agrees to be on probation, they agree to the terms and conditions of that probation. They cannot agree to the parole conditions. They're mandated by law under 3067 of the Penal Code. Okay, now, of course, some of the rules are the same. Yes. And the distinctions are generally uh, exist because of these different rationales. Right. Right. And so what, what are these different rationales? Well, when a person is on probation, they're not deemed to go to prison, obviously. And one of the, 
I guess, agreements on their part of not being sent to prisons. They agree to these conditions that are imposed by the court, provided that they are related to the charge for which the person is put on probation. Whereas parole conditions are generally uniform, they're not for probation, and they're justified by the state's compelling interest supervise parolees and to ensure compliance with the terms of their release. Okay, so in when it comes to probation searches, the the rules are going to be tied to the fact that a probation search condition may differ from probationer to probationer. Absolutely, they are not uniform. Whereas when you it comes to the parole search conditions, those are uniform throughout. Yes. Okay. Now, the search condition that the defendant in Douglas had uh, was a search condition that was imposed pursuant to placement on post-release community supervision. Yes. Did the Douglas court find that this condition, a search condition that's attached to PRCS is more akin to a probation search condition or a parole search condition? They said a parole condition. Why, why did they say that? Well, PRCS, like parole, involves the post-incarceration supervision of individuals whose crimes were serious enough to result in a prison sentence and thereby implicates important public safety concerns as well as the state's overwhelming interest in supervising released inmates. Does the Perks condition allow searches without reasonable suspicion? Well, the Douglas Court noted some disparity in the statutory language between Penal Code Section 3067 and Penal Code Section 3465, which authorizes warrantless searches of PRCS releases. The former requires the such individuals be notified before release that they are subject to search or seizure with or without cause, while the latter omits the with or without cause language. And the Douglas Court ultimately resolved this disparity by effectively finding that any search condition that permits a search without a warrant also permits a search without reasonable cause, as the former includes the latter, as the court put it. So now, in light of the court's ruling, finding that the perk search condition is akin to a parole search clause, let's explore how the Douglas Court answered some of the sub-questions raised in the Douglas case. Okay. Now, must an officer who knows an individual is on perks, and maybe before I ask that question, it is true, whether or not it's a parole or a probation search clause, correct, that the officer must know in advance that the person being searched is either on probation or parole and has a, a search clause, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So does an officer who knows an individual is on PRCS also have to have specific knowledge that a search condition has been imposed upon the individual who's on perks? No. If a police officer knows an individual is on perks, he may lawfully detain the person for the purpose of searching him or her, so long as the detention and search are not arbitrary, capricious, or harassing. It's not necessary for the officer to recite or for the people to prove the precise terms of release for the search condition is imposed by law, not by consent, as it is in probation searches. As in the case of parole searches, an officer's knowledge that the individual is on perks is equivalent to knowledge that he or she is subject to a search condition. Okay. Now, second, the second sub-issue, 
was what quantum of advanced knowledge must an officer have of a individual's PRCS status before conducting a PERC's detention and search? The court held that it's not required that the officer know to an absolute certainty based on up-to-the-date information that the subject is on PERCs. Rather, the test for determining whether the officer has sufficient advanced knowledge that the defendant is on PERCs is an objectively reasonable belief standard. That is, the officer's belief in the subject's status as a probationer, parolee, or person subject to PERCs must have been objectively reasonable in the totality of the circumstances. There's no rigid formula for how the standard must be met. The test is whether judged against the objective standards, the facts available to an officer at the moment he detains defendant would have warranted an officer of reasonable caution to believe the defendant was on perks. Okay, so absolute certainty is not required. Absolutely not. Mike, before we move on to the third sub-issue, let me just throw in a nice observation that prosecutors can keep in their back pocket. Okay. This is, it's only tangentially related, but it made its way into the case, and I thought it's something good that folks should know about. You know how, like, defense counsel will sometimes argue that because a certain a fact or circumstance is commonly present in uh, appellate cases upholding the constitutionality of a particular kind of search, that they will sometimes argue, well, this circumstance must be present in all cases in order for the particular kind of search to be constitutional. So, like, for example, the defense might point to four published decisions, all of which uphold the detention on uh, suspicion of vandalism. Right. And then they go ahead, they identify some sort of common denominator, and then argue that that common denominator always has to be present for the detention to be justified. Right. Well, th the next time this argument's raised, cite to footnote eight of the Douglas opinion, because there the court quotes from a U.S. Supreme Court case called United States versus Knights for the proposition that it is dubious logic to conclude that an opinion upholding the constitutionality of a particular search implicitly holds unconstitutional any search that is not like it. So, good little tidbit. It's in the uh, accompanying IPG memo if you're looking for this specific site. I love the phrase dubious logic, too. Okay, so the third question, though, now getting back to our Douglas case, is did the court find that there was substantial evidence that the detective in this case knew uh, in advance that the defendant was on PRCS, even though he failed to check a current computer database of probation information before the detention. Yes. So what was this substantial evidence? Well, substantial evidence, the court said, uh, was implicit finding that the detective subjectively believed the defendant was on perks based on detective's recollection of having seen the defendant's name on a probation list within the last two months, the detective's pre-existing familiarity with the defendant based on a prior arrest of familiarity that was substantiated with specifics as to the nature of the defendant's prior encounter, uh, excuse me, the detective's prior encounter with the defendant and when it occurred, and indeed the mere fact that the detective testified he knew the defendant was on PRCS was substantial evidence in and of itself to support a finding of a subjective belief on the part of the detective. Okay, so, so those were the factors that the court looked at in determining whether or not the officer actually had a subjective belief. Yes. Did they point to any factors showing substantial evidence that the detective's belief 
that this guy was subject to the perk search clause was objectively reasonable. Yes, the previous factors I just discussed. Okay, so same basic factors. Yes. Why? Well, based on the detective's recollection of having seen the defendant's name on a probation list within the last two months, detective's pre-existing familiarity with the defendant based on the prior arrest, a familiarity that was substantiated with specifics as to the nature of that prior encounter, and the mere fact that he knew, the officer testifying that he knew. And then Mr. Douglas's furtive actions in trying to pull away from the curb to avoid contact with the officer gave further support to the inference that he was still on perks and trying to avoid a search, thereby providing an increased suspicion to detain him. Okay, so Mike, there's, uh, under this Douglas case, there's no duty on the officer to check a database or contact the defense parole or probation officer to verify the person is on perks or probation or parole right before the officer conducts a probation parole or, or perk search? No, but it might be depending on the circumstances, but circumstances take into account the context of the search and the exigencies at that time. Mike, in reviewing a parole or probation search, or the reasonableness of the detention that preceded that search, does the court have to separately engage in sort of a standard reasonableness test of balancing the intrusion of the search on the suspect's privacy with the need for such intrusion to promote legitimate government interests? Yes, it does. Why is that? I mean, if we've got a search warrant, for example, we don't have to go into the reasonableness balancing test. We just, hey, they got a search warrant, it's fine. Here, let's say an officer did specifically know about the search clause. Would a court still have to separately find the search was justified under the standard balancing test, even though it was clear that the person had a, uh, a search clause? Yes, it would, because reasonableness is part of the Fourth Amendment, and you want to make sure that the search is reasonable when the officer executes the search. So that's what you're concerned about, is the, not so much the justification for it, but the way in which it is executed. Okay, so the court found here that there was a pretty minimal intrusion, but you know, the officer handcuffed the defendant. Isn't that pretty intrusive? It can be, but it was prompted by the defendant's own dangerous conduct and scuffling with the detective when he got out of the car, and as it turned out, he was armed with a firearm, All a right. loaded firearm. So when they're doing this balancing test, the fact that the increased intrusion was not basically prompted by the government, but was prompted by the defendant's own actions, ways in favor of finding that this, the search was appropriate. Right, and the manner in which it was conducted was reasonable, absolutely. Now, the, the, the prosecution here made an alternative argument that the detention was justified um, by reasonable suspicion and that there was probable cause to arrest the defendant even for violating Penal Code Section 148, which is the statute uh, dealing with resisting arrest. Did the court ever address those alternative arguments? No, they didn't need to in this case. All right. Our next case is properly deemed a companion case to People versus Douglas, since it deals with a similar question to that, uh, the, the question that was addressed in Douglas, and it was actually written by the same justice of the First District Court of Appeal. The case is called People versus Romeo, or Romeo. Mike, can, can you set the table for our discussion by covering the relevant facts of, of Romeo? Sure. Two officers went to the home of a pair of probationers. Probationers were Mills and Bolstad to conduct a search of their residence. 
The sole justification for the search was that the two probationers had a search condition. The defendant was inside the home during the search. The officers detained and handcuffed the defendant along with one of the probationers who was also present. The detention lasted about 45 minutes. The officers searched the home, including an attached garage which appeared to have been converted into some type of living quarters. The officers found methamphetamine, marijuana, and I believe six hypodermic needles in the garage. The search lasted about an hour, and as it turned out, the defendant lived in the garage. When questioned, the defendant said he stayed in the garage and admitted to possessing the items that were found. Okay, so this defendant, he stayed there. He actually wasn't the, one of the probationers. That's correct. He, he was, was just not. living at the house. Yes. Okay. So the defendant in this case, he makes a motion to suppress, challenging the search of the garage and the detention of the person. Yes. And he also makes a Harvey Madden objection, yes. challenging the search team's basis for conducting a probation search. Right. Um, what happens at the hearing in regards to what the officer said about how he knew these guys were on probation with a search clause? Well, he said he knew that Moles and Bolstad, excuse me, Mills and Bolstad were on probation with the search clause, and he confirmed their probation status by using Aries, which we mentioned earlier in this discussion. A, the magistrate initially sustained hearsay and lack of foundation objectives to this testimony and granted a motion to strike the uh, statement. However, the magistrate then allowed the officer to testify that prior to the search, he had unspecified personal contact with Mills and Bolstad, and he was familiar with them. The officer also was permitted to testify that he used the Aries system routinely in the course of his duties, and that he'd been trained in the use of the Aries system, and you can get probation information from that system, which is what he did in this case. In view of that further testimony and over-renewed objections, the magistrate allowed the officer to state he had personal knowledge that Bolstead and Miller were on probation, subject to probation search clauses, and that he had confirmed their probationary status using the ARIES system. All right, so was defendant's motion to suppress then denied? Absolutely. And he appealed? Yes, he did. Now, on appeal, what, what did the defendant argue? He argued that the people failed to justify the warrantless search because the only proof that Mills and Bolstad were on probation subject to search came from the Aries database, and since Aries is an official channel of information, the Harvey Madden rule requires independent evidence of reliability, which was never supplied, and that there was no evidence in the record of the specific terms of the probation search condition, and since the scope of that search is bounded by the terms of the probation order involved, it was impossible to determine whether in searching the residence the officers went beyond the scope of their probation search clause. Mike, our next case is probably deemed a companion case to People versus Douglas, since it deals with a very similar question to that addressed in Douglas and was written actually by the same justice who uh, wrote the Douglas opinion. The case is called People versus Romeo. Mike, can you set the table for our discussion by covering the relevant facts? Sure. Two officers went to the home of a pair of probationers, uh, Mills and Bolstad, to conduct a search of their residence. The sole justification for the search was that the two probationers had a search condition. The defendant was inside the home during the search. The officers detained and handcuffed the defendant along with one of the probationers who was also present. The detention lasted about 45 minutes. 
The officers searched the home, including an attached garage which had been converted into living quarters, and they found methamphetamine, marijuana, and I believe about six hypodermic needles in the garage. The search lasted about an hour. As it turned out, the defendant lived in the garage. When questioned, the defendant said he stayed in the garage and admitted to possession of the items found inside of it. Okay, so it's clear now the defendant was not the person on probation. That's correct. It was just that he was just living there with right. the two probationers. Mills and Bolstad were on probation. All right, so did the defendant make a motion to suppress after he gets charged with possession of these drugs? Yes, they did. And what was the basis of his motion to suppress? He basically made the motion to suppress challenging the search of the garage and the detention of his person and a Harvey Madden objection challenging the search team's basis for conducting the probation search. Okay, now at that motion to suppress, did the officer uh, testify about how he knew that uh, these two probationers were on probation with a search clause? He said he confirmed their probation status by using the ARIES system, which as we talked about earlier was a countywide computer system. And when he testified to that, what did the magistrate do? He initially sustained the hearsay and lack of foundation objections to this testimony and granted the motion to strike the testimony. However, he then allowed the officer to testify that prior to the search, he had unspecified personal contact with Mills and Bolstad, and he was familiar with them. He was also permitted to testify that he used the ARIES systems routinely in the course of his duties and that he'd been trained in the use of that system and knew that he could get probation information from that system, which is what he did in this case. In view of that further testimony and over renewed objections, the magistrate allowed the officer to state that he had personal knowledge that Bolstead and Mills were on probation, subject to a probation search clause, and that he had confirmed it using Aries. Okay, so was the defendant's motion then denied? Yes, it was. He uh, then appeals. Yes, he did. Uh, he ultimately pleads guilty, but they, they don't take a waiver of his appellate rights, so he appeals. Right. And uh, what does the defendant argue on appeal? He argued that the people failed to justify a warrantless search because, one, the only proof that Mills and Bolstad were on probation subject to search derived from the Aries da database, and since it's an official channel of information, the Harvey Madden rule requires independent evidence of reliability, which was never supplied, and there was no evidence in the record of the specific terms of the probation search condition, and since the scope of a probation search is limited by the terms of that order, it was impossible to determine whether in searching the residence the officers went beyond the scope. Now, uh, Mike, it sounds like this Harvey Madden motion was made. What exactly is a Harvey Madden motion? A Harvey Madden motion, sometimes referred to as a Harvey Madden Reamers motion, is a motion where an officer may arrest or detain a suspect based on information received through official channels, but upon objection of the defense, the people must prove that the source of the information is something other than the imagination of the officer who doesn't become a witness by offering evidence that the source 
has sufficient indicia of reliability. Okay, now we've already talked about some of the information that was elicited at the motion to suppress to meet this Harvey Madden objection, yes. including the, the information that the officer uh, had personal contact with these two probationers, was familiar with them, but more specifically, that he used the ARIES system to uh, verify that they were uh, on probation and had uh, probation surge clauses. So what was, what was the, the thrust of the defendant's argument why there was a violation of the Harvey Madden rule? Because the information was received through official channels, the area system, the officer never provided the source of that information. Mike, did the Court of Appeal find that the prosecution had introduced sufficient evidence to overcome a Harvey Madden challenge? Yes. The evidence presented to overcome the objection to the officer's reliance on the information from the database that Mills and Bolstad were on probation with search clauses consisted of the testimony of the officer that he had personal knowledge of Mills and Bolstad's probation status, knowledge which the magistrate impliedly found was not derived solely from the database but in part from the officer's pre-existing familiarity with the probationers, and the officer was the lead investigating officer, and he testified to his considerable experience using Aries. Um, it would have been perfectly logical for an experienced officer to conclude that since the information he obtained from the database he used routinely about two reported probationers was consistent with his prior knowledge of those two people, his decision to carry out a probation search in reliance on what he saw on the database was solidly grounded and current, according to the court. Mike, the defense argued that the evidence relied upon by the people to prove the officer's advanced knowledge of Mills and Bolstad's probationary status, specifically the references in his testimony to information obtained from the ARIES database, the defense argued should not have been relied upon because it was hearsay. And I know that the uh, Romeo court likened the Harvey Madden rule to uh, a rule precluding uh, hearsay. So what was the court's um, assessment of whether or not the reliance on this information and the admissibility of the information uh, violated the hearsay rule? Well, the court said that the information was admissible pursuant to evidence code section 1250 subsection A subsection 1, the state of mind exception. Under that exception, the officer's testimony that he obtained information from the database was admissible to prove his receipt of information from an independent source. That is, while the officer's testimony concerning his use of the ARIES database may have been hearsay, it was admissible for a limited non-hearsay purpose under Evidence Code Section 1250, Subsection A, Subsection 1. It wasn't admissible under the public records? No. A hearsay exception? No, it was not. The court did not agree with the people that the testimony regarding the probation search condition was admissible under that exception because while a printout from the database would have been admissible as an official record if properly authenticated, uh, the officer's testimony about his reliance on the database was admissible only if some other hearsay exception applied. Mike, did the people ever argue that 
the Harvey Mann rule in general is sort of aberrated because it can essentially result in the exclusion of evidence and pursuant to Prop 8, evidence can only be excluded in a California court if exclusion is mandated by the federal constitution. Since the high court in Herring versus United States basically held a search conducted by the police in objectively reasonable reliance on information obtained in good faith from a computerized database may not be suppressed, even if the information turns out to be erroneous, it seems that exclusion is not mandated by the federal constitution when it comes to information that is being introduced over a Harvey Madden objection where the officer is relying on a computer database. So has the Harvey Madden rule, according to the Court of Appeal, effectively been abrogated? No. The court rejected the people's argument because it believed the issue was not whether the officer could properly rely on inaccurate information from the ARIES database, but whether the officer had sufficient information to act without a warrant. And Mike, is that the only reason? No. They also know that the California Supreme Court has continued to assume the applicability of the Harvey Madden rule. Example would be People versus Brown, which we discussed in the previous podcast. You know, Mike, I have to say that setting aside the Romeo's court's conclusion that the Harvey Madden objection was properly overcome, its analysis seems just a little off to me. It I is. Mean, the, the Romeo court, they characterized the Harvey Madden rule as basically nothing more than the hearsay rule adapted specifically to motions to suppress. And they continually referred to the information that an officer, and the officer in this case, relied on to justify a stop or search as hearsay. But I'm not sure that this is an appropriate analogy because it's rare that information offered by an officer at a motion to suppress is actually being offered for the truth. And the question is generally whether the information objectively provided a, a, a requisite level of suspicion uh, that's necessary to justify the conduct, whatever the conduct was, that was engaged by the police, whether it was a search or a detention or, or, or an arrest. Unless the statements made by the original source of the information that is used to justify the arrest or search are being offered to prove the fact asserted by the original source, the information, it's just not hearsay. Correct. And extrajudicial statements to establish probable cause at a motion to suppress are admissible over a hearsay objection because the truth of the information that is, is being relied upon is not an issue. And it's not being offered to prove any element of the offense against the defendant. That's right. So it's just being offered, right, solely to establish the officer had reasonable probable cause to, to do the search or seizure. Right. It's only when the prosecution seeks to uphold the search based on something other than probable cause or reasonable suspicion that the evidence is offered at a motion to suppress for its truth. So, for example, when the people wish to justify a search on the ground that a defendant had a search clause, a statement from a witness that a defendant had a search clause is being offered for its truth. In other words, it is being offered to show that the defendant had a search clause. Absolutely. And if at like a motion to suppress, for example, the people wanted to show a defendant did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a car. And they wanted to do that by showing the car was registered to someone else. That registration information would be offered for the truth. Yes. You know, it, it, it deals with the situation of, of standing. But those are far and few between. That's the exception to the rule. I mean, usually it's not being offered for the truth of the, the 
the, of the matter asserted when you're at a motion to suppress. Right, fact, it's generally just offered to establish probable cause. In fact, even when the inf information is being offered to overcome a Harvey Mann objection, in most cases, it's not being offered to, tr to, to, to prove the truth of the matter being asserted. It's being offered simply to show that the information was actually provided, that it wasn't made up out of whole cloth and generated by the imagination of the officer who doesn't become a witness. That's right. So instead of drawing this analogy between the hearsay rule and the Harvey Madden rule, I think it's probably better to look at it as kind of a, a non-statutory evidentiary rule that requires some independent evidence that what is being sought to be proved actually occurs. So in that way, it's not so much like a hearsay rule, but it's more like the corpus delecti rule, and, right? Because the corpus yes. delecti rule, it prevents a conviction based solely on an out-of-court statement of the defendant and requires there be independent proof a crime has actually occurred aside from the out-of-court statement. Yes. That's just kind of like the Harvey Madden rule, which prevents an arrest or search from being upheld based solely on an out-of-court statement being recounted by an officer who doesn't have any personal knowledge of the statement and, and requires that there be independent proof there was actually information uh, that was supplied to support the probable cause for the arrest or search when the officer testifying is not the original source of the information. So at bottom here, in situations where a defendant's Harvey Madden objection is directed at challenging whether a probation search condition existed and the people are relying on a statement from the computer database that a search clause or a warrant existed, in that situation, the statement is being offered for the truth of the matter. In other words, that the search clause or search warrant existed. I agree with that. But in that case, the statement does not become admissible over a hearsay objection unless it falls within a hearsay exception or the court takes judicial notice of the fact. So when the statement's being offered to prove the existence of the probation search clause, then if you're looking for a hearsay exception that, that needs to be applied, uh, you have to either come up with uh, the hearsay exception of the public records, evidence code section 1280, or the court has to take judicial notice of its own records. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that the foundation for the exception that was shown in Romeo was enough to, uh, to, to establish that the information could come in under that exception. But that's really notwithstanding what the Court of Appeals said, that's really the hearsay exception that would apply. It's not, as the Court of Appeal indicated, the state of mind hearsay exception of 1250, because in that situation, the officer's state of mind is not at issue. So we don't need it to prove the officer's state of mind. We're just using it, the exception to prove the actual existence of the search clause. Right. Now, if the question is whether the officer reasonably believed there was a search clause, then the officer's state of mind is at issue. But you don't need a hearsay exception in that case because it's not being offered for a hearsay purpose. So if you want to introduce evidence that the officer looked at a computer printout of a probation search clause, you can do so without having to find a hearsay exception for it. It's yeah. non-hearsay. It's only being offered to show that he could reasonably believe a probation search clause existed. It yeah. doesn't add anything to, to say, oh, well, it's awful, also being introduced under Section 1250 uh, and it do doesn't really help you to do that because subdivision B of section 1250, even though it allows evidence to come in to show the state of mind of the officer, 
it prevents the use of evidence of a statement of memory or belief to prove the actual fact remembered or believed. So it doesn't really help you. I agree, it doesn't help. Finally, if the information regarding the search clause from the computer printout is being offered to show the officer reasonably relied on the computer printout, in other words, if the search clause actually existed, this helps show, would help show that reliance on the search clause was reasonable. In that case, the computer printout is being offered for its truth. But once again, the applicable exception to prove the search clause existed is the public records exception, not the state of mind exception under 1250, because subdivision A of 1250 only allows in the evidence to prove the declarant's state of mind and neither the state of mind of the testifying officer nor the state of mind of the person inputting the information in the computer is at issue when the question is whether the probation search clause actually existed. I agree. That's good that we are of one mind on this, Mike. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so that being said, let's get to the second issue. Whether the officer not only had to know the probationer, uh, the probationers in this case had search clauses, but what the search clauses allowed. What did the court say in that regard? Because the terms of probation define the allowable scope of the search, a searching officer must have advanced knowledge of the search condition before conducting a search. Without that advanced knowledge, the search can't be justified as a proper probation search, for the officer doesn't know, know what he's allowed to search for. So a search condition uh, is not necessarily mandated by statute for every probationer. And probation search closures are not necessarily uniform. That's correct. And in fact, you may even have situations where the judge can limit the scope of a defendant's consent to searches for particular contraband. Like you could have a search closure that just allows to search for drugs or stolen property, or it places uh, spatial limits on where the searches take place. Or right? in the context of, say, child pornography, to search the computers at that house only. Some judges have standard probation uh, terms for particular crimes and particular circumstances. And if that's case, and you might be able to, in certain cases, be able to prove the nature of the search clause by judicial notice, but that wasn't used in this case. And the practices vary by county all over the state. So that being the case, is mere knowledge that someone is on probation and subject to search without more sufficient when there is a challenge to the search? Absolutely not. You need to know the scope of that clause. And did the Court of Appeal in this case find that the uh, officer had sufficient knowledge of the scope of the clause? No, not in this particular case. Why not? The search in the instant case can't be justified without any showing that the searching officer knew the target of their search, the residence itself, fell within the scope of the probation search clause and indicating the search first justified later approach is particularly problematic where third-party non-probationers, such as the defendant in this case, are involved. On the record presented here, the court said it was impossible to tell what limits may have been imposed on any probation search conditions of Mills and Bolstead. The Romero court observed that even if it were inclined to draw an inference from the officer's testimony that he likely knew the terms of the governing probation orders, thus supporting an implied finding 
on this point in light of the fact he checked the Aries database, the court would need some form of objective proof from which such inference logically could be drawn. The officer's subjective belief was just not enough here. All right. Did the court give us any indication, though, how the people could have met their burden of proving the objective reasonableness of a uh, warrantless search like the one that occurred here that's based on a, an alleged probation clause? Yes. First, the people could have presented a search clause expressly allowing a residential search. However, while presenting the probation order itself may be the better practice, the court didn't view it as a mandatory condition. Second, the people could have presented more detailed testimony from the officer showing some understanding of the operative terms of probation and connecting those terms to the need for a warrantless search. Third, the search could have been justified if the objective circumstances otherwise warranted it. Okay, last case, Mike. People versus Wolfgang. It also involved a search done pursuant to a search clause. What happened in that case? In that case, a deputy was dispatched the mobile home of the defendant on a suspicious activity call. Upon arrival, the deputy saw a trailer parked on the property. After learning that the trailer had been reported stolen, he basically ran the plate, mm -hmm. the deputy contacted the defendant. The defendant provided his license, and when the deputy ran the defendant's name through dispatch, he was told by dispatch the defendant was on probation for brandishing a weapon. The deputy didn't ask, and he wasn't told whether the defendant's probation included a search condition. However, the deputy knew, based on his training and experience, that when a person is on probation for weapons violation, the probation generally has a search condition attached to it. The deputy had never encountered an individual on probation for a weapon violation who was not subject to some type of search condition in the course of the deputy's career. Did the deputy know any of the specific terms and conditions of the defendant's probation? No, he did not. Nevertheless, because the defendant apparently had a stolen trailer and was on probation, the deputy did a probation search of the defendant's home to investigate whether the defendant had any other items of evidence. There he discovered a loaded 22 caliber rifle on the defendant's bed. Now Mike, did the record reflect whether dispatch was even able to provide the specific terms and conditions of a defendant's probation? No, but the deputy testified that law enforcement officers are not given and don't obtain specific terms and conditions of the probation when they're checking the individual through dispatch and that law enforcement officers don't directly contact the court to find out an individual specified terms and conditions either. Now, as it turned out, was the defendant on probation for brandishing a weapon? No, he was not on probation for brandishing a weapon, but he was on probation for another uh, different felony case. And did that probation have search terms? Yes. Now, after the defendant was charged with being an ex-felon in possession of the firearm, he made a motion to suppress the firearm in the trial court. What did the trial court rule? The trial court denied the motion. It found that the deputy acted completely in good faith based upon information he would receive from dispatch that the defendant was on probation for weapons violation and that it was common policy and procedure that probation cases include such terms. Okay. Mike, the motion's denied. It goes up on appeal. What did the defendant argue on appeal? 
Well, obviously, the defendant argued that the trial court was wrong and that it should have suppressed the firearm because the deputy presumed but didn't know for certain at the time of the search that he was subject to a search condition. The defendant also argued that the good faith exception was irrelevant under the circumstances of this case and it was inapplicable to the mistakes by law enforcement. Now, as we know, Mike, an officer has to have advanced knowledge about an individual's probation or parole search condition at the time the search is conducted. So did the Court of Appeal find the search could be justified as a probation search in Wolfgang? The court didn't hold but assumed a search can only be justified as a probation search where the officer is specifically informed by dispatch the defendant's probation contains a search condition as opposed to here where the deputy actually believed and was aware based on his training and experience weapons violations cases normally contain search conditions. Moreover, the court recognized that searches of probationers may not be conducted for reasons unrelated to the rehabilitative and reformative purposes of probation or other legitimate law enforcement purposes and that a waiver of a Fourth Amendment rights as a condition of probation doesn't permit searches undertaken for harassment or arbitrary or capricious reasons. So in light of that, Mike, did they overturn the trial court's denial of the suppression motion? No, they didn't. Notwithstanding its assumption the officer must be specifically aware a search condition exists, the court held that a search of a person subject to a search condition by an officer unaware of the search condition violates a suspect's Fourth Amendment rights only if the search is otherwise unlawful. And did the court find the search was not otherwise unlawful? No, it did not. Why not? The court said that the record shows at most that the deputy made a legal error. He did not confirm with dispatch the defendant's probation contained a search term and therefore mistakenly believed he was justified in searching the home. The court said that a mere legal or factual error by an officer that would otherwise render a search illegal does not render the search arbitrary, capricious, or harassing. The fact, if it be a fact, the search is not supported by probable cause does not establish the search was necessarily conducted for purposes of harassment. And then the court concluded that because the search was conducted for a legitimate law enforcement purpose, that is to investigate the stolen trailer, and because defendant by accepting probation and the search condition waived his Fourth Amendment rights, the search, though conducted without a warrant and without specific knowledge of the search condition, was not constitutionally unreasonable. Mike, that sounds somewhat similar to a case that came out a decade ago called People v. Hill, where an officer suspected that evidence of a burglary would be found in a defendant's motel room. So the officer checks with dispatch. He's initially told the defendant's not on probation. The officer then begins the process of seeking a search warrant, but while he's awaiting for the arrival of the detective who's going to be responsible for getting the warrant, the officer receives another call from dispatch, and dispatch advises the officer that the defendant is on parole. Now, as it turned out, in this Hill case, the information was incorrect, and it was due to a misreading of, of uh, the relevant information by the dispatcher. But relying on this misreported defendant's active parole status, the officer then searches the defendant's motel room, and he finds some uh, property belonging to the burglary victim. About two days later, the officer learns that the defendant's parole had actually expired, but he was 
on probation, and he was on probation with a search condition. So under those circumstances, the Hill Court held it wouldn't serve uh, the purpose behind the exclusionary rule to suppress the evidence since the officer did everything he was supposed to do. It, it wasn't like his conduct uh, reflected a disregard for the Fourth Amendment. And by admitting the evidence, it wouldn't, therefore, present a danger of legitimizing unlawful police conduct. The Wolfgang Court relied on Hill, but there's something a little off with that dis Wolfgang decision. And it seems to be harkening back to the days when the California Supreme Court in Ray Tyrell J was the case, said that an officer didn't need to know in advance that someone was on probation or parole to justify a search. They later repudiated that case about 12 years later in a case called In Re Jamie P, where they said, oh no, an officer needs to know whether or not someone's on probation or parole before they do the search. Here, the Wolfgang case is sort of implying that that's not required and that's wrong. Okay, so in general, uh, at least all the cases that we reviewed, you do, an, an officer does need uh, some advance notice of a probation, parole, or perks search clause before they can use that clause to justify the search. All we have here, though, is a situation where if none of the rationale for suppressing evidence is present, then they may not apply the exclusionary rule if, under like the unique circumstances we have here, they are somewhat mistaken about the nature of the search clause. Right. They do need in a probation clause, though, to know exactly what the terms of the probation are and what they can and cannot search for. Okay. Well, Mike, thanks very much for joining me again, and uh, we hope to see you sometime down in the future. Thank you. <laughs>